Welcome to the CFITrainer.net podcast. As everyone is now aware, the news cycle is moving very fast and of course dominated by the COVID-19 global pandemic. Just a quick reminder at the start of our podcast that all fire investigation professionals should conduct scene safety assessments at every scene and select PPE according to identified hazards at that scene. Coronavirus transmission precautions should now be part of your scene investigation protocol. Respiratory protection and cleanliness have probably never been more top of mind. So please take care of your own safety as you serve the public interest or fulfill your client's mandate. There's a COVID virus resource dashboard available from the International Association of Fire Chiefs. I checked it out this morning and uh, there's plenty of resources to assist you there. There's also daily updates related to fire departments across the country. Again, that's at www.iafc.org. We appreciate the service that all of our responders, healthcare workers, and others are providing us with our daily safety and essentials. I saw the FedEx driver in my neighbor's driveway yesterday and said, we appreciate what you guys are doing. He stopped and said, you know, I never really appreciated what people think or how they rely on us sometimes. It feels good. When we have our editorial meetings to decide what to discuss on this podcast, we often look to recent news stories for emerging topics in fire investigation. We had intended to make this podcast one of our news roundups, where we amplify a variety of stories that may be of interest to fire investigation professionals. This month, while researching stories, one topic caught our eye amidst all the corona news. Fires at sober living facilities. It feels both timely and and a bit late, since the opioid crisis and the resulting proliferation of addiction treatment resources has been an ongoing issue for two decades and intensified in the last five years. Sober living houses trace their roots back to the 1930s, so it's not that it's a new idea, but the growing popularity of sober living run by addiction recovery peers, the presence of these homes in otherwise single or multifamily residential communities, the uneven nature of licensing and regulation, and informal sober living arrangements between friends in recovery is creating fire protection, firefighting, and fire investigation issues that we thought merited some specific attention. So here we are. Some quick Googling turns up a variety of fire incidents in sober living facilities. Here are a few examples. A member of a sober living house in Northern California who had recently moved out was arrested for reckless arson for causing a fire at the home. The home was left uninhabitable. Sober living homes in South Portland, Maine, Patterson, New Jersey, and Lansing, Michigan have been damaged by electrical fires, all displacing residents. Three female residents of a sober living home in Nashville died in a massive fire in 2018. The fire remains under investigation. The fire department says no working smoke alarms were in the home. There are a lot of issues raised here, including regulation by states and municipalities, code application and enforcement, unregistered and unlicensed or informal facilities, fire safety, and non-standard occupancies of single-family residences. Then, if a fire incident occurs, there will be unique fire investigation challenges like interviewing persons who may not have permanent contact information, possible electrical system overburdens or jury rigging, a potentially transient population increasing the witness list, lack of inspection records, if the sober living house was not registered, or did not have to be registered, and the possibility of having to investigate multiple potential fire causes arising from an occupancy of adults in dormitory-style bedrooms with shared common areas such as cooking or heating equipment in rooms 
and smoking in multiple bedrooms or rooms like basements and closets illegally converted into bedrooms. Here to talk with us about some of the issues with fires in sober living homes is Fire Marshal Peter Lennon, an IWI member and Fire Marshal from Manchester, New Hampshire, where Chief Dan Goonan has been working on this issue. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, Peter, how, how are you and your people doing with this COVID thing? Uh, we're doing good. Um, we were uh, still ramping up here in the city, but uh, we're doing good. We don't, so far, um, we're running a lot of testing site and uh, just uh, maintaining what we have. Well, wanted to make sure we checked in on that, and uh, we're glad to hear that for you. I know a lot of cities, you know, that it's just, it's just about the timing and, and preparedness, and we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Exactly. No problem. So let's start out uh, when we're talking about these sober living arrangements, just to get an idea of what's out there. I, from what I understand, the facilities range from hundreds of residents to small groups. What, what are you seeing out there? The biggest thing we're seeing is we're seeing uh, these sober living places that are popping up in um, more of a, a residential setting that we don't anticipate them being at. So meaning that we're coming up to an apartment building that usually has like three apartment buildings in it, and they've uh, illegally converted the apartment or the apartment building into essentially one dwelling unit and with you know anywhere from 20 to 30 people inside the, the building at one time. And, and what was the capacity at the time? Usually, you know, most of the, the apartment buildings only probably have like a small family of four or five people in at the max, but we're actually seeing um, these apartments that have seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven people in it. Very, um, It's very common for these places to just put lots of people in, in the, into a residential space. Wow, I'm, I'm glad I clarified that because I, when I said at the time, uh, I wasn't too clear. What, what I meant was, is you know, what's the typical standard uh appropriate occupancy and and what you're saying is it's going from two three four people which is would be normal what these places are developed for up to 10 to 15 or 10 or more correct yeah we're seeing some apartments that actually have over over 10 people in them um they just um basically any place they have a room they're they're putting beds down and they're uh, having people stay in there so i'm sure that a lot of people who listen to us already know uh, what some of those issues, you know, what that would lead to. Why don't you talk a little bit about the regulatory fire protection and code enforcement issues? Yeah, so the code, the code part of it that we're running into is um, basically they're they're just popping up. They're not letting the city know they're there. They're not going through any of the permitting process. Um, and they're basically just um, out there and looking for us to kind of find them. So it's been um, the big the big thing we're really running into is no code really will define the definition of family. Uh, there's some definitions out there, but that's our biggest hurdle right now is they're, they're calling themselves a family. And um, so sober living really doesn't fit. Um, New Hampshire, we enforce the uh, life safety codes uh, from NFPA. and um, Sober living really doesn't fit in ten of the categories, so we're using the uh, dormitory rooming lodging chapter, um, which actually requires um, sprinklers and fire alarm systems because it's a new occupancy and that's the big stumbling block is these occupancies don't want to spend the money to put those life safety features in um, to make the building safe and code compliant. So we've been working with the state trying to get um, either variances for these properties or just, you know, maybe come up with a, a second or additional classification of sober living. But essentially the, the risk with that is we're essentially lessening the, uh, the safety requirements. So that's, that's the big thing that's going on right now with us as far as the code part of it. 
And and I, as I can imagine, this is a state by state issue. Yeah, I mean, there's unfortunately there's a there's a lot of big companies that run these places, and they have a lot of money, and they're uh, they're fighting us all along the way with any enforcement that we try to do, and it's getting tied up in the in the courts. And and as as I've heard or I've read, I should say, um, from Chief Goonan's comments, it's not that you want to shut these people down; you just want to make sure they're safe. Absolutely, and we want to make sure we, they're safe. We want to make sure we know where they're out there. Um, you know, a typical response for us for a you know, residential unit is only, you know, an engine and a ladder company versus if we know there's going to be multiple people in there, you know, we'll, we'll increase the response just, just to be safe. You know, time is very important trying to get the people out of the building. So that's one of our big stumbling blocks is just knowing they're out there and just adjusting appropriately for us as far as responses. So what I've heard is, is you're trying, you've got a couple ideas out there um, that looked pretty unique from what we read. Uh, could you talk about that? Because again, I, my understanding was you were looking for cooperation, not to not to put people in need out of a place. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we we are pretty much ground zero for the um, opioid crisis, and you know we understand the recovery part of it is very important. But and we're not trying to close these places down, but we want to make sure that they're safe. You know, everybody should be in a safe building, um, especially people in recovery. Um, so we're, we're working, like I said, we're working on compartmentation, um, fire alarm systems, just some. Alt- some not really alternatives, but some other measures that we can at least get in there, at least to make the building safe. But we are not at all looking to close these places down. But with that said, there are some good ones, there are some bad ones, and we do have some enforcement stuff against some of the bad ones that we we just have to we have to move forward with. Sure, as with any business. So, what are the challenges? You, you spoke a little bit about uh, apartments, and I'm I'm sorry if I missed you speaking about single family homes because I'm thinking a little bit here. I I. Uh, what are the specific challenges in single-family homes? What are you seeing in terms of occupancy, usage, utilities, that kind of thing, housekeeping? Uh, it's, it's the same thing. You know, we're getting uh, complaint calls from neighborhoods that, that um, you know, single-family home, house went on the market, somebody buys it up, pays cash, and next thing you know, there, there's people outside all hours a day, and just, you know, there's, there's multiple tenants there. That usually is not um, indicative of a single-family setting. So single-family are usually the, the ones that, get reported to us quicker than an apartment building because usually apartment buildings um you know the people are kind of always out and about and stuff but it just it's not fitting some of these neighborhoods and that's what's drawing our attention to it not just just the code part of it so how about advice for other people who aren't at ground zero um that are maybe seeing a, a little bit of this my understanding is you have quite a few of these places that have have sprung up uh any advice that you could share to others around the country um, you know, the the big thing I would do is just, you know, get to know everybody in your community as far as the other departments, um, whether, you know, the police are noticing calls for service, and complaints to the health department. Um, you really got to work together with all the other agencies within your jurisdiction. They may have information that something's going on, um, but that's, that's key is being able to, uh, you know, share information with other resources that are in your community and get out there and, you know, see what's going on. A lot of it's um, it's pretty easy to find these places if you start doing Google searches. You can find pretty much any of these places, especially addresses. And a lot of these places have, uh, you know, Facebook. There's a lot of Facebook stuff out there for recovery places. Um, you can find a lot of the information. A lot of things, another uh, good resource is probation and parole for us. Um, they're actually putting people in there. Um, so they're, they're a great resource as well. So just, just reaching out to the stakeholders and, and see where they're putting these people. As with so many other issues. And, uh, again, you know, I... I keep hearing in the background of, of a lot of the things that you've said and, and what I read about the chief that, 
you know, you're trying to do the right thing here to make people safe and, and help them out during some incredible challenges in their lives. When you have to investigate a fire at one of these places, uh, what are some of the unique challenges that you might face? So what are, we, we have had a couple fires in these places. Um, we probably guesstimate we have about 60 of them out there. We know of about 40 of them, um, but we're being told specifically that they're, um, some of them are, are underground purposely just to kind of avoid us. But the incidents we've experienced is um, usually everything that we've has been accidental. Um, we've actually, smoking is a big part of the recovery process, and that's what's been pretty much the driving factor as far as fires relating to these places is smoking, careless disposal of smoking. Um, we've also had a couple incidents with people that were placed there that shouldn't have been there, that should have been supervised, um, having small kitchen fires. Um, but everything we've experienced has been, you know, accidental and cause. What am I missing? I don't, mm, I don't think anything. <laughs> well, that's awful nice. I, uh, you know, with, frankly, this, this subject came out of nowhere. Um, yeah. We, we started, you know, doing some reading, and it, as I had said in the story as, uh, previous, as I was reading the intro for this, you know, this sort of came up, and we hadn't really thought of it, and, and I hadn't even thought about what a sober living home was, and then I, I thought, well, maybe halfway house was the old terminology. Yeah, yeah you know, and I mean, halfway houses are more for your people that are coming out of, like, your, your prisons and stuff like that, but they still, they're still, um, our probation and parole will place people in um, sober living that, um, you know, is essentially coming out of out of some type of substance abuse program or drug court or something along those lines. They'll, they'll place them in there. Um, the big thing, and there's a big, there was a big case right now that one of our, somebody that probation and parole placed actually went missing. They um, went on a crime spree. So that really brought a lot of this to the forefront as well, as far as these people being in neighborhoods where they're not supposed to be. Okay. Well, I'm very grateful for your time, all of us are. And uh, that's Fire Marshal Peter Lennon. Uh, thanks for having me. It was great to talk to everybody. Thanks for helping us understand this issue better. We encourage the fire investigation professionals listening to this podcast to educate themselves on the sober living and other group homes in their community and the applicable state and local regulations. We will close today with some other relevant information from the IWI. The ITC is canceled this year, and the IWI is surely saddened by this. So many people were looking forward to the gathering in Vegas. This year's ITC was tuning up to be a great conference with excellent content and record attendance was expected. We hope you're doing well during this time of isolation. It looks as though many of you are coming and learning during this time. We've had some of our highest usage analytics recently and we're glad you're here. Please spread the word. We believe this knowledge is motivating and helpful during this time. Updates on training will be posted at the IWI's website located at www.firearse.com where there'll be information about how this year's uh, mandatory issues related to, you know, that are normally handled at the ITC will be done um, virtually. So things like the election for officers and the AGM will uh, be things that you need to check in to find out how they'll be handled at www.firearson.com. Our thoughts are with all of you and your families as we each do our best during this virus. This podcast and CFITrainer.net are made possible by funding from a Fire Prevention and Safety Grant from the Assistance to Firefighters Grant Program administered by FEMA and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Support from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives 
and voluntary online donations from CFITrainer.net users and podcast listeners. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Stay safe. We'll see you next time. For the IWI and CFITrainer.net, I'm Rod Ammon.